This is producer Michael Miracle. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. Be sure to check out our website at iworkforhim.com. That's iwork4him.com for all of our past shows and podcasts, plus Jim's blogs, reading recommendations, and tons of great I Work For Him resources. All available at iworkforhim.com. And now, today's broadcast. Thanks for tuning in to I Work For Him this afternoon as we broadcast all over the world on letstalkfaith.com and iHeartRadio, but right here in Tampa Bay on AM 570, 910, and FM 102.1. You can also find us on Talk America Radio. Just look them up online. You know, I think it's safe to say that we've raised a generation that is more familiar with how to survive a zombie apocalypse than they are with how to survive real life. Many in our country are more familiar with the plot lines of the hit shows like Twilight, and the walking dead that are familiar with the full redemptive message of Jesus Christ. Which message has real life-giving impact, real eternal impact, real life-saving skills? When we're... When, when, when are we going to stop filling our minds with nonsense and start filling our minds with the very thoughts of our Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ? But wait, sometimes you can use the nonsense to help people understand the reality that we live in. And so today we talk with Danielle Strickland. Danielle serves at the Salvation Army as an officer in Toronto, Canada, and I believe she's moved to Los Angeles, California. We'll find out in a minute. Serving the marginalized for over 20 years, she's also the co-founder of Infinitium. Wow. Infinitum, Amplify Peace, the Brave Campaign, and the Ambassador for Stop the Traffic, a global anti-human trafficking campaign, and of course, Compassion International. Danielle has just released her latest book, The Zombie Gospel. Danielle Strickland, welcome to I Work For Him. Hey, thanks. It's so great to be with you. Okay, so how do you say infinity? Um, yeah, do- it's a bit of a fight. It's infinitum or it's infinitum. It depends on, it's oh. a Latin word that means boundless. And it's uh, it's kind of like a discipleship system, a way of living that uh, follows Jesus as a primary means of life. Infinitum. I can do infinitum. Yes. I just have never seen infinitum. it spelled that way before. Okay. All right. I, I can yeah. do that. That That's good. I like that. that All right. Okay. We're here to talk about your latest book, The Zombie Gospel. There's so many things I want to talk about because also your incredible career with the Salvation Army. I, I read a couple of things. I know initially you've been, I know you've been in Canada, but are you in LA now? Is that where you're at? You know what? I just moved back to Canada from L.A. I was there for a couple of years, and I've just moved to Toronto, Canada. That's my latest. It's hard to keep up with me, but that's yeah. my latest post. <laughs> yeah, the online bios and your family are both trying to figure out where you live today. Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> all right. I, I get that. All right, so what's the story behind you becoming a Christ follower? Yeah. Oh, hey, that's a good story. Um, basically, I was raised. My The story actually starts with my parents. My parents are both kind of abandoned children. My mom was in the foster care system, and my dad uh, was sold illegally as a baby and kind of into this home that wasn't very fit. And uh, the Salvation Army was door knocking in poor neighborhoods looking for kids that might want some hope and found them both in different neighborhoods, different towns. And they both kind of tell the story of finding a place of belonging, which is what they were looking for their whole entire life, and these kind of unwanted kids being wanted, finally, and coming to know Jesus and their worth and their value, and then kind of spending their life giving it back. And so uh, that was kind of the ethos I was raised in, both of them coming from pretty broken backgrounds, but raised in the Salvation Army context of no one's ever too far gone and 
you know, hope is never <laughs> uh, gone, that there's always this possibility that God can redeem and restore. And um, so I was a big fan of the Salvation Army, but I had some mixed reviews about God because my dad and I had a really broken relationship some probably generational patterns of uh, emotional unavailability and kind of some of the scars of his own upbringing. And uh, and so we were estranged. So I just always had these false beliefs about God, that God was kind of perpetually disappointed and not very fun and uh, kind of super religious and authoritative. So I just thought rebellion was freedom. So I just went for it. Like, I just was like, let's get free. And I was one of those like hellion pastor's kids that just you know, was uncontrollable. And um, because I believed a lie that rebellion led to freedom, I pursued it. Of course, we know that the lie exposed is that rebellion leads to death. And so I quickly, you know, was estranged from my family. I was um, involved with drug dealing and car stealing, and I was in and out of jails, and then finally kind of landed in jail for some serious crimes. And it didn't look like it was possible for me to get out. I remember being in this holding cell in downtown Toronto, actually, in the city hall. And um, and the Salvation Army lady, I was estranged from my family, but, you know, I used to whisper conspiratorially that the Salvation Army was always out to get me <laughs> and that they were everywhere. And so I remember this lady, little lady, coming to visit me, Salvation Army lady and myself, and giving me a lawyer's card. I remember thinking to myself, oh, great, here comes a lecture. And instead of a lecture, she just wrapped her arms around me and she said, I love you. And I, of course, I didn't hug her back. I was like cold as ice. I said after her, I shouted out after her, you know, you didn't even bring me a smoke. <laughs> That's how grateful I was for the visit. And then uh, when she left, I remember the steel door closing and me being alone in this cell. And then Jesus showed up. And I don't know really how to describe this to people that makes any sense, except that it was just this phenomenal encounter that I had. And Jesus did the same thing this lady did. He just... He wrapped his arms around me and he whispered to me, I love you. And my cold heart melted. Like I, I describe it like somebody turned on a light. And I, I literally came to my senses. I remember saying to myself, holy blank, you know, I'm in jail. Like, what am I doing here? Like, um, and I began what my mom says is not a change of speed, just a change of direction. And kind of as fast and furious as I was headed to hell, I just kind of like went the other direction and tried to pursue um, Jesus. Hmm. So from all of that experience, you and, and I didn't know the story about how you were really kind of, you know, the Salvation Army was dogging you all the time. How did you become a social justice warrior where you're defined by your desire to reach the least of these and you get to play out this passion every day within the Salvation Army? Where did that all come? How did you make that turn? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating, but I feel like the, the, the thing that happened with me in jail with Jesus was this kind of like first conversion kind of idea, this idea that I awoke to the reality of the situation. So I finally saw God for who he was, which is love. And I finally saw myself for who I was, which was like broken and messed up. And so once you get that right, you know, you have it in the right order, but it still becomes about my life. I, I'm saved from, you know, my sin, my drug addiction, my fear, you know, all this kind of stuff. But uh, probably about uh, once I got done, I went to drug treatment to get out of jail. And um, and then I asked for special permission from my probation officer to go on this mission trip to Africa with this interdenominational group. And on the mission trip, um, it was crazy because it was a really strict group and I was really not good at following rules. 
And, uh, and anyway, it was a long, long story. Finally, I had this day of free time, but I had to do this assignment or else I would lose my free time. So I decided to just go ahead and do it, even though everything in me didn't want to do it. And what it was, was we had to share this like gospel message with somebody. And I remember taking, grabbing this like African girl Fatima. And I said, I, the, and I presented like literally the world's worst gospel presentation. I'm pretty sure in the history of the world, I just said to Fatima, like, you know, I'm so sorry um, but if you don't mind just giving me a couple minutes or else I'll be in trouble, you know, kind of thing. And Fatima's like, yeah, sure. So I just go through this gospel presentation. Like, God loves you. Sweet. You're a sinner. Bummer. Like, Jesus died. Nice. And then, like, do you want to follow him? And I remember turning to her saying, like, so do you? And she she looked at me and she said, yeah, you know, I really would. And then I kind of panicked a bit and I went back to the beginning of the the thing and, I, and this time I didn't just do the headings. I also did like the paragraphs underneath that explained everything. And I went through the whole thing again. And you know, would you like to to follow Jesus? And, her, and she said to me, "Yeah, I really would." And then I, I still didn't believe her. I like went back to the beginning. I made her do it again. And I went through it and through it and through it. This time I even acted out the illustrations. You know, just in case there's a cultural problem. And you know, just basically because I realized at the end I finally let that girl follow Jesus. It was very kind of me, but. Um, I realized afterwards that I believed God could save Fatima because he saved me. I knew that God could do whatever God wants to do. What I didn't know, which would change the rest of my life, is that God could use me to save Fatima. And that's really what I call kind of like my second turn. My first turn was towards God, and then my second turn was that this salvation was bigger than me. It wasn't just about me. And so in many ways, this pursuit of mine to just give away what I've been given freely and to allow God to somehow use me in the process of bringing this story to the world, you know, this hope and life and goodness and truth and possibilities to everybody. Uh, that really, it, it just saved me from myself and it saved me from a salvation that was just small enough to fit into my life. And it invited me into this like big grand adventure. And I'm, I'm so grateful it did. Not just saved from, but saved for. And I mean, that's what you're doing. You're, you're putting your faith into action each and every day at the Salvation Army. So you just wrote this book. You, I mean, I, I remember getting a preview about your book about six or seven months ago going, hey, this is coming out this fall. This is coming out this fall. I'm like, I have got, I don't even know what this is about, but I have got to hear this because I know that my millennials, mostly my 20, almost 25-year-old daughter, she and her ex-boyfriend, thank God, watched every episode of the zombie gospel, of the, excuse me, of the, that would be great, of The Walking Dead. She wouldn't miss it. What was it that caused you to write a book called The Zombie Gospel? What, what was it that said, I'm Danielle Strickland, I'm going to write that book? <laughs> no, I think it's exactly what you just described, is that she's not alone. I mean, it was like the number one show in America for like eight years in a row or something crazy like that. I mean, it, it is like a phenomenon. And I I literally, like, I usually subscribe to the idea of, you know what, I don't really need any more death in my life, you know, so I'm not really into that genre or watching those shows. And um, I just, I literally gave into the curiosity. I was like, what is driving people to watch this? You know, until first I thought I would watch it and just be like, oh, yeah, it's garbage. And we're just like, you know, insatiated with this appetite for destruction, you know, like all those things. And I, I started to watch the show. I remember like all by myself. I wouldn't contaminate anybody else. I remember like in my couch, like putting my earphones in on my little laptop, you know, late in the hours so my kids wouldn't wake up, you know, like that kind of thing. And my husband wasn't interested. And then I watched the show that all these millions of people are watching in uh, specifically in North America. And I just, I heard it. I heard like a cry. I heard 
um, these very deep, profound, beautiful questions. Chiefly among them is what does it mean to be human? And I realized as I was watching that show, and there's gory, you know, I don't want to get anyone to watch a show that doesn't want to watch that show. It doesn't like, it doesn't need to. What I want to do is get people to buy the book to give to everybody who's watching the show because there's millions and millions of them that have watched it. Because what I want to do is I want to talk about the cry and the questions that that film asks. And those questions are so deep and so important. Like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? Like, what are we doing on the earth? Like, who are we? If we're not like propped up by things that exist already, if it's not about wealth and if it's not about status and if it's not about titles, who are we then? And I felt like as it was asking these deep, deep primal questions of humanity, I felt like it was like a cry of a generation that kind of is living in this apocalyptic time where everything's threatened, their future's threatened, like things are collapsing, like will there be a system for them that will make them be able to relax or will they have to figure out who they are all over again? And these questions are answered and held in Jesus. Like, Jesus is literally the personification of what it means to be human. He holds all of the answers. And I kind of felt like there was this parallel between the times we're living in now and these questions that this show's asking, and the times that Jesus, when Jesus showed up on the earth, and the, the time that they were at, and the questions they were asking. And I thought, this is so amazing, because I feel like if we could talk about Jesus— like really clearly, not just as a Savior, although definitely as a Savior, but also as this human being who came to demonstrate what it meant to be alive, fully alive, that we could answer some of these deep, deep questions of a generation. So really, I got like, I got kind of caught up. Like, I feel like I was taken over almost with this, like, and, I, and that book just kind of poured out of me. I, I, I love that. And and I caught that because you throughout the book you do you, you capture just a few scenes from The Walking Dead as you describe things, but it was it was really all about these people who have who've encountered this zombie gop, uh, apocalypse and they're they're trying to figure out how what is life really all about now because their paradigm had completely shifted permanently. And yeah. life was going to be different. And what do they deal with? And, and, and I want to lead down through some of those questions. But how do you see watching The Walking Dead? How did it help you understand the gospel more clearly to be able to present it to this millennial generation that is watching stuff like this? I think it's kind of connected. You know, like I'm not very skirmish because I've hung out in a lot of almost apocalyptic places in, in my life, you know, so I've met um, and I've kind of faced those questions, I think, in my own life before it was presented kind of in a movie, you know, in a TV form. I feel like when you meet, you know, like a homeless person or someone who's been sexually exploited and you have this version of them in your head. Um, because people who are, you know, weak by societal standards must be weak. And then you meet these people, and they're some of the strongest, most, you know, most intelligent, most powerful people that actually you've ever met, and your whole world turns upside down. And you start realizing that actually you're the weak one, and they're the strong one. And you see what happens in The Walking Dead are all of these relationships begin to turn and it, it really is like an upside-down world, which, of course, is how Jesus kind of describes the kingdom. It's like it's, it's this kingdom that's coming that's not of—you won't recognize it, like, in the values that exist in the world. They'll be upside-down. You know, and you kind of hear the Beatitudes, and we just all think, like, oh, for, that's craziness. You know, like, it's just craziness. But when you start stripping back all of these things that have propped us up, 
even, you know, these values of society, like consumerism is a big, big, big thing I hammer in the book, The Zombie Gospel, because zombies, by definition, are, are people who consume with no regard for what they're consuming, which is what makes them horrifying because they eat brains, right? Which we just are like, that's ridiculous. You're eating people. Like, that's not cool. And But really, when you think about consumerism as a societal disease, we, we are literally consuming with no regard to what it is that we're consuming or what it means to the people uh, who have made it or have been forced to make it or have been locked in a, you know, it, or, or, or serving in Bangladesh on a cotton field. And, like, literally we're living in, like, the, you know, the, the fastest growing crime on the planet is, is trafficking, is slavery. Yet one more time. But we don't even want to know. And we're living in a time where, like, we just want to buy a cheap shirt. That's it. We don't care who made the shirt. We don't want to know. <laughs> like, don't give us too information. And that is when you take a mirror to that, that's a zombie-like behavior. That's like becoming a consumer with no regard for what you're consuming. And that's a disease, and that needs to be recognized as that. And so, you know, just elements of that show that are just so clearly a mirror to our society right now saying, like, is this kind of human you want to be? That's great. I, I, you need to come preach in Tampa Bay. I love this. Okay. All right. So there's so much in this book, but we're limited on time. So I want to just ask some specific questions. And right from the get-go, and I had to go back to the beginning. As I read the whole book, then I go back, and I always underline and highlight and put question marks on things. But you said on page three, right as your intro in the book, the gospel has been hijacked to support and encourage a personal relationship at the expense of community overthrow, which is really what the early church did. It overthrew the Roman Empire with love and self-sacrifice. Talk to me about your thoughts on this. What do you mean? I mean, how do we, how you, how can we fix this? Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to what we just talked about at the beginning, like my own conversion and then my calling. And I think, I think what happens is we've majored on the conversion, which I don't want to, I don't want anyone to think is bad because everybody needs Jesus for their own life. Like there's, there's just no question about it. Like the gospel does mean Jesus becomes your savior, personal relationship with God. Like that's at the essence of the gospel. It's just not the whole gospel. It's not it. Because what happens is you're saved from something and for this early, but you're saved for something too. And I think that's what we're missing. That's what the church is missing is that all of this salvation, all this hope, all this life, all this forgiveness, all this. I mean, even in the Lord's Prayer, you, you, you hear it, don't you? It's like, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who, who sin against us. You know, and we just, we don't even talk about that. We just talk about forgiveness, getting forgiveness from God. And we don't talk about, about dishing forgiveness out as a means by which we stop the cycle of violence in the world. You know, so so recently I was in I was in Salzburg just this year at a Catholic youth event, and uh, and, and, and and Jesus, I mean, just they just were like, please preach the gospel. Like some of these kids have been going to church their whole lives, but they haven't they haven't had this relationship with Jesus. So I just I preached the gospel. And like a thousand kids made first time decisions for Jesus. It was amazing. Eight thousand kids there, and after this big incredible salvation service, like five thousand of these kids just like poured out of the Salzburg Cathedral and went up to this big hill overlooking Europe, and they just started praying for Europe and praying for the needs of the world. And it was really convicting because as they were praying, one of them brought up ISIS. And one of them starts to pray. They just start praying naturally. These teenagers, you know, Catholic teenagers, you know, praying for ISIS. And one of them just starts praying fervently that God would save, just like he saved Saul. 
and made him Paul, that God would take the, you know, the primary ISIS leaders and have them converted to Jesus and like be, be messengers of peace and love. And, and it was so convicting because I remember sitting there thinking, what? Like all this time I've been thinking they have to die. You know, like, <laughs> oh, like this whole time I've just been like, we got to get those guys out with a drone. You know, like this is in my mind. I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, like, like, and I don't mean, I don't want to be political, get you in trouble or anything like that, but I, I, I'm just saying, like, the gospel actually says something else, doesn't it? And this it kid instinctively prays this overthrow, but not an overthrow like in a Rome style, an overthrow in kingdom style. And that's when Saul gets, you know, radically converted and becomes one of the best evangelists ever known. And I mean, what kind of a prayer was that? It was so convicting. And I was like, that's the kingdom. That's the message. That's the Jesus. This thing that this teenager instinctively, just in the overflow of God coming near to him, recognizes that that means God can come near to the world. That's what we're missing. All right. As we're talking with Danielle Strickland today, I want to just take a step back, Danielle, as people tune in, they're tuning in at the bottom of the half hour and they, they don't know your history. We're not going to go all the way back, but you work at the Salvation Army as a captain and you're back. Oh, I don't know. What are you now that you're back in Toronto? What's your title now? Yeah, now I'm the consultant for evangelism. Okay. For Canada. So yeah. so mm-hmm. as the consultant for evangelism, does that still take you into the rough and tumble places of the inner city? Yeah, you know, I go there just for my own self, you know, for my own for the gospel, for my own sense of what it means to be human. Because uh, I believe, you know, one of the ways that we find the elements of our humanity is when we when we give to those that people that can't can't give us anything back right now. And I feel like there's something there's just something Christ-like about going out of our way to get in the way of injustice and pain. So, so that's kind of what I find. I feel like uh, the Salvation Army. If people don't know, like at Christmas time, specifically in December, everybody's on deck for like work because <laughs> it's kind of one of the busiest seasons of the world to be an officer in the Salvation Army. We call it almost like surviving December. You know, not not the shopping part, but the giving part. So um, that's kind of where some of our major fundraising is done, but it's also where like some of the most pressing needs are presented, and people are uh, experiencing the mo- the highest levels of despair, and uh, and so we want to be present where it's most needed um, in in the season. So, and my experience of the Salvation Army is uh, all over the map. You know, I've been a local church leader, so a lot of people don't know the Salvation Army is a church. Um, and they run, you know, local churches all over the world, uh, 128 countries around the world. Um, I've served in Australia. I've done a lot of church planning with the Salvation Army in kind of poor neighborhoods. Uh, in America, you'll find sort of croc centers or social services centers or community centers where, like, kids uh, from low-income uh, places can come and find belonging and teams and sport teams and leagues and all kinds of things, troops, uh, scouts, all that kind of stuff, and begin to explore what it means to be wanted and be part of community. Um, I've held uh, appointments uh, creating justice uh justice uh, departments for the Salvation Army in a couple different countries. And a lot of that has been creating advocacy roles and speaking up in areas of injustice. I've done lots of work around trying to stop human trafficking. So that like, goes from a range of like starting safe houses, you know, on that level, which is usually a highly professional thing, to advocacy campaigns to stop violence against women, to chapel outreaches on the streets to women who are sexually exploited and into brothels. Um, you know, there's kind of just so many ranges. And then I've done a couple very short-term administration jobs. That doesn't really do well much for me, but... <laughs> that I can tell. Done. So yeah. does the Salvation Army need some help doing what you're doing? 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, the Salvation Army, I believe that one of the calling the Salvation Army has is to be a bridge um, for people to begin to help um, those people that don't have enough. So if you're anywhere, really, you're going to, in a local town, you're going to probably have a local Salvation Army. I would suggest you call them up. I mean, my husband, it's really funny, but he, he just got out the yellow pages when he was in college because he was convicted to help poor people. And he just looked through for the Salvation Army and then called the number and said, hey, is there anywhere I could help? And he ended up coming on a street outreach youth uh, van, and that's where we met. And that, that was a really good decision he made that day. <laughs> <laughs> so says his wife of how many years? 22 years. 22 yeah. years. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you wrote this book, The Zombie Gospel, which really touches, I mean, in a very heartfelt manner, a lot of people 50 and under, but the most of the people 35 and under who got caught up in The Walking Dead for almost a decade. This show that really talks about the zombie apocalypse, but as you explained, it really goes so much deeper. Talk to me about Rick. You, you keep talking about Rick's life story within The Walking Dead, but you talk about it within the zombie gospel and, and how Rick's life gets impacted. Who is Rick within the story of The Walking Dead? Yeah, Rick's kind of the main character. Um, he's the sheriff, so he's the guy that kind of the show is wraps around. He's kind of the leader. He, he, and it's, it, it's his discovery. You know, the, it, the show opens up with Rick uh, recovering in a hospital. His friends have thought he's dead. The, the zombie apocalypse has happened, and he wakes up to this world that has changed. And Rick was the sheriff, so he was like the guy that was in charge before. So he kind of wakes up, and he—I mean, he put—he he gets home, and he's—he's kind of introduced, like, very graphically to like what it means to live in a zombie apocalypse world, which is like really violent and scary all the time. And every his family's gone; he doesn't know what's going on. And he goes, he showers, he changes, he puts on his sheriff's uniform, gets in his sheriff's car, you know, gets his sheriff guns, and he kind of drives around, and he—and he's looking for his family, and he—he he kind of approaches it this new kind of crazy world with this old set of ideas about the world. And you kind of, it just starts dawning on the, on the viewer as well as eventually Rick that like, who's he representing? There is no law. You know what I mean? Like this isn't the world that we used to know. Like none of the, the, the rules that we used to go by apply to this world. And so Rick kind of discovers this, like, who is he if he's not a sheriff? And what is right or wrong if there's no law that says so? You know, and like, and one of his best friends becomes, he gets, he makes best friends with this guy who's actually an outlaw. And so in the old world, these guys would not, they would literally be enemies. But in the new world, they become deep friends and they start respecting each other and learning who they are as, as humans rather than who they thought they were. And that relationship becomes this rich, beautiful, which what I think is a fantastic gospel relationship because we see past what the society says about people and we see into the real humanness of each other. And when we see that humanness in each other, we can really love each other. And that's what the gospel does. And Rick's view of life really changes, as you highlighted in the story. There, the, the, All of the killing and everything really eventually has a, a pretty severe impact on him, doesn't it, towards the end of the story? Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, this is a, you know, some critiques of the, and I, I know Shane Claiborne is a really big big anti-violent guy and he he wrote he wrote a endorsement of the zombie gospel he said i don't know why i'm doing this because like there's nothing in me that wants to support kind of this this excessive violence and um and i totally get it and i write like a portion in there and even rick who's like the main character who's like we're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna solve everything by violence 
realizes, you know, even in the middle of the show, like, this isn't working. This isn't working. And actually, I don't want to be this person that's constantly killing and constantly trying to respond to violence with more violence because it just creates a very, very dangerous, dangerous world. And so there's a point in one part where he actually puts his gun away and he becomes a farmer and he kind of like commits himself to living a different way. It doesn't work out for long because the reality is is that the world is harsh, but it's such a good conversation. And that's one of the things I really say is I believe that violence is never actually the answer, that the more violent we get to respond to the violence in the world, the more violent the world gets. And we're part of this perpetual cycle. And one of the things that happens in The Walking Dead is everyone gets tired of it. Like, the viewer gets tired of it. The characters are tired of it. Like, you know, you see these guys that used to, like, pick up their gun and go out, like, you know, like, ready to take on, you know, like, their Terminator, who just literally are, like, sighing at the thought of it. You know, like, you can't, you're just like, oh, make me do it again. Like, they're just exhausting themselves on this idea of violence being a redeeming factor in a world. So, you know, what I have seen is that the gospel has so much good news because of the redemption. Jesus didn't just come to redeem us, but he came to restore the world that we live within. And and really, adversity is one of those things that really starts to change and form in our lives. How do you I mean, how do you talk about that adversity and how it impacts these people? Because towards the end of the story, you talk about how one of them gets pregnant. And this yeah. ad- this adversity and then that bright light really changes things. Well, and this is, I mean, this is like, I, I would be, I would love to show sort of that, that birth of that child in The Walking Dead as a nativity Christmas message, because that's literally, I mean, if you think about the context of Christmas and when Jesus was born, and you think that even just shortly after Jesus was born, Herod, you know, kills, orders the killing of all these young uh, boys, and Jesus has to escape for his life. I mean, you think of the backdrop of the darkness and the violence of that culture, and this birth mattering, you know, that life itself is sacred somehow. And the sacredness of life is this essence of God in people, like this idea that God made humanity sacred. I mean, he made us, he set us apart, he made us as image bearers of God himself to the world. And that in a, in a world that commodifies human beings and aborts babies because they're insignificant or they're the, the wrong time, you know, a world where value, that the, the life, the value of life is just so depreciated. There's something. I think for this generation in the sacredness of life, you know, and this is this is true of every generation. But you know, when they wrote Genesis, that the, the historians, the biblical historian, historians, think that you know they wrote Genesis when the Israelites were literally in and out of captivity, like in Babylonian captivity. And the writer, you know, is saying, you know, what do we tell people who struggle with the value of life, who think that they're they're slaves, who think that they don't matter, who think that they're just a human commodity, who think you know they're functional beings. And, and, and the writer says, I know what we'll tell them. We'll tell them why they were made. Mm. You know, and then, the, then there's this, this, this deep resonance of the sacredness of humanity. And I think this generation, in light of the backdrop, the way the world is, needs to hear more than ever before the Genesis message. Not the Genesis 3, that they're broken. They know that already. But the Genesis 1, that they're wanted, that they're created with the sacred image of God. In them, and there's something so powerful about it. It is so important as Christ followers, as we go into our workplaces, each and every day that we understand what is it that God intended for us to be human. We need to understand that we are his image, that we are reflecting his image wherever we go and that we've got the opportunity because of the incredibleness of our bodies, intricacies, 
that they scream. This was done by a creator who loves us. And the zombie apocalypse gets people to be thinking about different kinds of things. And Danielle Strickland said, you know what? I'm going to reach a different generation with the gospel message using zombies. Danielle Strickland, this is a fun book. It's also very serious, but it's a fun book because you've really taken a, a cult classic. Well, one one day will be a cult classic. Right now, it's just a cult current. But <laughs> I mean, did you know, how old are your kids? Oh, they're little. Like, well, I've got a 15-year-old and a 8-year-old and a 5-year-old. All right. All boys. Do you have nieces yeah. and nephews that watch this? I mean, how did you even find out about it? Because I know you don't have time to watch TV. Yeah, you know what? It was um, it was really just mostly friends and the fact that the sheer numbers, like when I would see like the number one show, um, and I do like to, I try to stay current, you know, so that I, I, I like, you know, uh, some great hearts in the Christian faith say, you know, you should have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, right? And that the, if this word does not make any sense to the culture in which we live, then we haven't communicated the word well. So I think in a sense, it's kind of up to, especially if you're, I, I'm a communicator, so I try to communicate the gospel in ways people can understand. So it's important. I think it's part of my job to stay up a little bit on what culture is doing and what it's saying and what we need to be communicating. So I think for me, it was more like a curiosity around like, what is making this such a popular show? Hmm, I love that. So the zombie gospel, if you want to get a copy, email me, Jim at iworkforhim.com. Jim at iwork, the number four, him.com. All right. So I want to ask you the last question about the book I want to ask before I get into something a little controversial. You had a conversation with a quote unquote general from Yalta. It was a guy that you were called to. You you were the only one they were willing to sacrifice. Everybody was really busy. They said, Danielle, you go meet with this guy. Yeah. But he helped you actually, understand some things. Yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating guy because he, when he was 17 years old, he had been converted. The Salvation Army was in Russia, like many other churches, and then got kicked out by Stalin. And when the Salvation Army got kicked out and Stalin started cranking, you know, cr- cr- cracking down on all these religions because he hated God, he, um, Vladimir was about 17 years old. He was in a in an outdoor meeting. He was playing the trumpet, and he got arrested, and he got sent to prison. And, and, and when I was with him, I spent two weeks because he had phoned sort of saying, look, I already have a Salvation Army working here, and we had come to start the Salvation Army. So we were like, what are you talking about? Like, we're here to do that. And he goes, no, it's already happening. Just send some uniforms, you know. Like, and, and so they sent me to kind of go investigate, like, who is this guy? He calls himself the general from the office. And so I took a translator with me, and I, I, I lived in his house for two two weeks, this little house that he built with his wife, Anna, and he told me story after story after story every night, tears running down his cheeks, pictures, you know, of the time, telling me about the gulag and the time that he had spent and, like, the work camps that he had done and just, like, jail after jail about how God had miraculously shown up. As a matter of fact, he, he told me this story about this Bible miraculously showing up and this whole conversion of his, his entire jail. So it's about 58 guys, hardened criminals, and this, like, 17-year-old kid, and he got that was his first conversion story, and then he, because this Bible was so sacred to him, because he didn't know his Bible very well, he showed it into the insides of his coat, and he told me how he would, like, go to the—he went to the gulag, but he'd have the Bible sewn into his clothes. And then years later, you know, when I got back from Russia, I read the conversion of Solzhenitsyn. And uh, as I read his conversion, he said, you know, I was in the gulag, and I was in this— sick bay with this crazy man with the Bible sewn into his coat. And I remember reading the conversion going, oh my gosh, I think that was Vladimir Kailovich. I think I know that guy. Anyway, he's just, I mean, this guy, he just literally changed my life because he was so vibrant. His relationship with his wife was so loving. 
he was so kind. He was so excited about the future. I mean, he was 78 years old when I met him, and he was vibrant with this idea that the gospel was for now and today, and that now they were free to share it, and they were doing marches along the boardwalk. And I just remember, like, being out. I was on this rowboat in the Black Sea, you know, just, like, rowing around thinking about how my life would forever change because I met this man whose values were so incredibly different that he made me feel small. He made me feel small because what I was aiming for was some sort of version of worldly success or what I, what I was aiming for was comfort or what I was aiming for was wealth. And actually what he was aiming for was the kingdom of God. And it just literally, it, it, it made me want to be, uh, it made me want to be like him. It made me want to be really human, the kind of human that Jesus said we should be. Mm, that what a great story that is you know what i love about the end of your book as i got to the end i'm just going to read it really quick don't get me wrong i'm not suggesting you shouldn't be entertained by the walking dead i'm simply offering a possibility that the show might be a way for you to have a deeper conversation with others about what really matters in life. In a sense, it's an invitation to prepare yourself for the realities of a harsh and broken world, but it's also much more than that. Rather than thinking of this book as simply a survivor's guide, think of it as a thriver's guide. Remember, the end of the story is that a new humanity is possible. If you're willing to lose your life, you could find a better one. You no longer need to be afraid. With God's help, it's possible to find your courage, lose your fear, choose a peaceful path, and change your mind. You are part of the plan to save Save the human race. Finish that up. I mean, that's good. That's that's, phenomenal stuff. It's so beautiful, and I mean, which is in essence what we believe the gospel is, right? I mean, this is what Jesus has done. He's invited us to partner with Him in saving the the human race. I mean, this is the great apocalypse we're living in this time. It's beautiful, and we as Christ followers are part of God's rescue plan. And we need Absolutely. and we need to see that and to use every tool possible, just like you did, taking The Walking Dead and writing a really neat book that will help so many people just understand the gospel in the true light that it is. I mean, we get so... Yeah, the, we get caught too, up. Yes, we, and we and get we, caught up in religion. Yes. Well, and we also, we get afraid of the dark, which is bizarre because we're the light of the world. So... You know, lots of people get scared of the dark, and they're like, it's so dark, it's so dark, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm like, you don't have to be afraid. You're the light of the world. Like, shine the light on the darkness. Don't hide from it. We don't have to be scared of the dark. And some people watch zombie shows, and that's why they're afraid of the dark. So, <laughs> just like you said, you didn't want your kids to watch that stuff. Uh, but it is true. I, I think when we watch all that fake darkness stuff that's on TV, it, it gives us the impression that our light and the power behind us is less than what the darkness has. Yet we have far more power at our accessibility because of our Heavenly Father. And, and we yeah, don't... And I think here's the idea, too, is that we... Because we we close ourselves off, we are not open to the conversation. So, like, when my son gets old enough to watch The Walking Dead, I won't mind him to watch it. But what I would like more than him watching it is I'd like to have a conversation with him about what it's saying. And that's where I think what happens is when we don't critique the culture, we get bamboozled by it. So we're critiquing, you know, how many swear words or do people get killed or, you know, like we're, we're, we're critiquing it on a surface level. But what is the deep call of the like, what's it saying? And do you think that's true? And is that something that resonates with us as Christians and how? And that's where we start critiquing culture in such a way that we have gospel lenses on. We can we can make the gospel make some sense. Well, and as you know, you've been gifted. 
you've been so gifted as a speaker and as a writer and, and really as a mentor, as you're going out and reaching the least of these, you're a super leader in, within the body of Christ. Yet there are many that will criticize and say, you know, women shouldn't have leadership positions. Women shouldn't be leading the church. They shouldn't be lead pastors. What do you say to those people? Because I think they're wrong. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I <laughs> well, it makes it a short conversation. You know we both think they're I mean, wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think the gospel's clear. I mean, one of the most profound statements of the gospel, like what made it so profoundly irritating to Rome <laughs> was its uncontrollable nature. Like that there was this, you know, in a in a culture that was obsessed with hierarchies, the gospel was flat. I mean, everybody. I mean, women were chosen by Jesus particularly. If you, if you haven't really—you haven't embraced women as equal and called by Jesus, you haven't read Jesus' life very well. Because Jesus goes out of his way to not only include women, but also to release and empower women. So the first witness of the resurrection, the first you know person to go tell the disciples, he sent the women. It wasn't an accident. He could have made it anybody. But he sent a woman because he's trying. The first evangelist even that got uh, anyone to follow Jesus in his ministry was the woman at the well, was a right. Samaritan woman. So, I mean, he like, you know, in all through Acts, of course, women are prominent leaders, uh, both local leaders and apostolic leaders in the early church, the earliest church. So any kind of return to hierarchy, you know, where we say this person's in and this person's out and this person's in and this person's out because of the color of their skin or the gender or whatever it is, you know, what background they're from, whether they're Jewish or Greek or the gospel's so clear. I mean, Galatians is so clear that there is none of that anymore in the kingdom of God. That there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female, there is no, that that, that all are one in Christ Jesus, that this is like a free-for-all, this is a new way of living. And that has always been an affront to a dominant culture of hierarchy and power and control. And we, and and so we, it should be a confront. You yeah. know, it should be confronting to, to you know, sexual harassment land. That's it should right. be confronting to white privilege. It should be confronting to male power. It should be confronting to racism. You know, that, that's what the gospel is supposed to be. It's supposed to feel confronting. Daniel Strickland, thank you so yeah. much for being an I Work For Him today. I you really appreciate it. it. Thanks joy. for bringing the zombie gospel. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace, it's my mission field. But ultimately, I work for him.